Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, Dr. Higgins welcomes Dr. Nathaniel Lester Cole for a conversation about prostate cancer. Dr. Lester Cole is a resident in the Department of Therapeutic Radiology at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Higgins is a professor of therapeutic radiology and of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences. So I thought maybe we could just discuss some of the general concepts uh, centering around how we treat prostate cancer and how prostate cancer is a a multidisciplinary or sort of three-prong approach of surgery, radiation, and then some systemic, including hormonal therapies. Right. So for localized prostate cancer that is, you know, prostate cancer that hasn't spread anywhere, we think about ways of uh, treating the prostate gland itself. And essentially, there's really two fundamental ways you can do that. Um, So you mentioned surgery. So urologists are typically involved in a surgery called radical prostatectomy is a way of essentially removing the prostate. Um, An alternative to that is to treat the prostate with radiation therapy. Um, And, you know, as a a radiation oncologist, that's essentially, uh, you know, what I do. Um, And that's a non-invasive and alternative way of treating prostate cancer as well. Um, And then, you know, we tend to think about prostate cancer in different groups. So um, we think about low, intermediate, and high-risk disease, and you know that's based on a blood test called the PSA, and also um, what the cells kind of look like under the microscope. So the more aggressive-looking they are, we tend to think of those as more higher-risk cancers. And the higher-risk cancers tend to uh, derive a benefit from hormonal therapy as well. Um, and that's typically combined with radiation therapy in the treatment of you know, intermediate and high-risk prostate cancer. Yeah, and I think it's important for for us to just touch on that issue of, you know, sort of risk. There's sort of a continuum of risk. Prostate cancer is sort of a variety of different diseases of different levels of aggressiveness. Right. Um, and you said we look at the PSA, which is a blood test. So that's one thing that is very concrete. But then there's the Gleason grade, right. which people hear about. But I, I think maybe we could re- kind of relate to people. How, how do we determine a Gleason grade by looking at cells under the microscope? Yeah, so essentially what... Um and this involves a different group of doctors called pathologists who look at, you know, basically their job is to look at these tumors under the microscope. And what they're looking at is, you know, how closely do these tumor cells resemble the, the natural, normal cells of the prostate? And essentially, the uh, less that they resemble the normal cells and, uh, you know, kind of the more distorted they are, those get assigned a higher Gleason grade, or those are considered to be the higher grade cancers. And we're going to talk about this with relationship to your research, but these things, the the grouping of low, intermediate, and high risk really help us to figure out just how aggressive our treatments need to be right? and and how we're going to approach those patients because one thing we know is that there are men who live with sort of the low-level, non-aggressive prostate cancers for their whole life and may never see a consequence of that, and then there are the higher-risk patients who 
will probably in their lifetime or possibly have a consequence from it. And and I think that's a big part of your discussion as well as the urologist, right? Maybe you could go a little bit through what you sit, you have to educate the patient about something that's really actually very complex. Maybe you can tell us what that yeah. discussion entails. Yeah, so it's very complex and it's very um, individualized and kind of catered toward the individual patient. So um, one thing we haven't talked about is not treating prostate cancer is also considered a very you know good option, particularly for men with low risk disease, where we think that you know there's actually a very low chance that that prostate cancer is ever going to get outside the prostate and spread and cause symptoms, um, and so not treating it or you know doing what's called active surveillance um, is actually now becoming standard of care in the U.S. for men with low risk disease, and we have a lot of good data to support that that's a very safe option, and so um, you know in conjunction with their urologist, essentially what that entails is getting a blood test and you know usually twice a year and getting a biopsy done once a year and as long as it stays low risk there's no reason to do anything about it you can just continue surveying it and then if at some point they say oh you know now we found some higher grade disease um, maybe that's when it's time to think about one of the treatment options like surgery or radiation. Yeah, and I think that's an important point to make. Just because you get a diagnosis, um, patients need to understand that for prostate cancer, especially there's there's sort of a calculated risk. And we, right. we have tools now um, that are actually, it's very reassuring now that we have tools to help people when they have to make that difficult decision of, oh, I have cancer, but I'm not going to really treat it right now. <clears throat> and that's a tough, actually a tough discussion to have. Yeah, it is. And I think, again, um, we're really moving towards, you know, individualized decision making and really trying to take into account the patient's own goals of care. So, you know, there are some people who um, have that issue where they say, you know, I know I have this cancer and I can't, I, it keeps me up at night. You know, I, I really want to get this treated. And if that's consistent with the patient's goals of care, then I think it's reasonable to do that, you know, even potentially for lower risk disease. Um, so we're really trying to think about the patient's own uh, preferences, and then, of course, what the side effects are from the treatment, because the treatments, whether it's surgery or radiation, uh, with or without hormone therapy, aren't without their side effects. Yeah, and I thought maybe we could talk about uh, some of those things. Um, uh, I've had some surgeons as guests who've talked about the uh, risks of surgery, but maybe we could just talk right now about um, the things that can come after surgery, like radiation. Um, like radiation therapy and hormonal therapy. Right. Um, so, you know, before I think it used to be very difficult to think about um, side effects comparing one treatment to another, but we actually have this really well done study that came out this past year, you know, the PROTECT study, which took men uh, with prostate cancer and they were randomized to different groups of surveillance, radiation, and surgery. And I, so I think for the very first time, we have a really good idea of uh, what the different side effects are in comparison to one another. The study essentially showed that there was no difference in outcomes. So a lot of this really comes down to what those side effects are. Um, and so it turns out that you know, the men who underwent surgery had more difficulty with uh, erections, you know, with sexual function. Um, that was, you know, statistically higher in the men who underwent surgery. And the men who underwent uh, radiation therapy had, you know, more difficulty with gastrointestinal problems. So like, you know, loose stools and that sort of thing. Um, and so I think that data really can help, you know, guide us in terms of, you know, if one of those side effects is particularly important to someone, you know, I, could, you know, I, I couldn't stand living with one of those, um, then it can help us pick which, you know, treatment is right for them. Right. And, and fortunately, we have a lot of effective therapies, and now we can really 
uh, basically have conversations, as you said, very well-informed discussions with patients about what the incidence would be of potential uh, side effects if they received, let's say, surgery versus radiation versus hormones. Right. Um, so let's say, so you're a radiation oncologist, the patient comes into your office, is coming in for a consultation, and after discussion, uh, that person's going to have radiation therapy as their primary treatment. What kind of things do you discuss in terms of um, the treatment and, and what kind of side effects they can expect short-term and long-term? Right. So the, the standard way of treating prostate cancer with radiation therapy is called you know external beam radiation therapy. So um, it's a non-invasive treatment. It essentially involves the, the patient lying flat on a table, and there's basically a big machine that rotates around the patient and delivers the radiation to the prostate. Um, and it's, so it's kind of like getting an x-ray. You know, you don't feel anything. You go home that same day. Um, and that's not to say that it's not without side effects. There are some side effects that the patients can experience with time. Um, and so those would include potentially some fatigue, so they may just find that they're more tired at the end of the day. You know, sometimes the, the prostate gland can get a little inflamed and cause some bladder irritation. Um, so, you know, maybe having to uh, urinate more frequently than they did prior. And, uh, you know, potentially some loose, loose stools as well. And those side effects are usually temporary if they happen at all. Um, some men don't experience them, but they're typically temporary. Um, you know, the risk of having, you know, permanent problems with, you know, bladder function or, or stools is, we think, is pretty low based on those studies, like a couple percent. Um, and we have ways now of even trying to lower the likelihood of that happening. So, um, you know, working with our urologists, um, we're using a technique now where we actually inject something between the prostate and the rectum called spacer, and we think that that actually will lower the dose um, to the rectum and potentially, you know, we actually have data now that suggests that that actually lowers some of those GI side effects that we talked about. Right, because <clears throat> one of the things we face with prostate cancer is that it's an organ sitting near other essential right. organs, and in the front you have the bladder, right. in the back you have the rectum, and then right. underneath the prostate we have the nerves that control erection and right. sexual function. Right. So these, these are sort of the challenges for us as a local therapy. Right. Now, now you were talking about external beam radiation therapy, yep. um, the type that we give a little bit each day over many weeks, six to seven weeks. But right. some people, uh, you you know, hear radiation therapy and they think about implants. Right. And um, they say, oh, you know, my, my uncle got the implant. How is that different than the type that you're talking about? Right. So, again, the kind I'm talking about, we typically actually do 44 treatments, you know, done Monday through Friday. So very lengthy course. Um, an alternative to that, as you mentioned, are radioactive implants, and that's a little bit more like a surgery, although not quite as involved. Um, so that actually involves, you know, putting in seeds directly uh, into the prostate gland, and that's done once, you know, usually under uh, uh, under anesthesia, um, and that is an option too for uh, for certain men with, you know, low to intermediate risk disease who have a they need to have a small enough prostate gland. So mm -hmm. that's one of the sort of criterion that we use. Um, and that can just be determined by a simple uh, ultrasound study. And then, you know, where I think the field, uh, you know, is potentially going in terms of, you know, external beam is we're trying to figure out if we can, you know, do we really need 44 treatments or can we shorten it? Um, you know, kind of similar to what's been done in the treatment of breast cancer. Um, so that is, you know, something that's being studied as well. Yeah, and just to go back to the external beam issue and how that's done, you said 44 treatments, you come in, you get a little bit of radiation every day, and that, that's like an x-ray type of treatment. Right. Um, 
as you said, the prostate implants more of a surgery and the little radiation seeds are placed right in the prostate. Right. And then that really works by having those seeds in place permanently. That's right. They don't, they don't come out. Um, they're implanted permanently. And then over time, the seeds will give off the, the requisite dose right. to take care of their prostate cancer. Yep. Um, so with regard to um, the hormonal therapy, yeah. um, that's another, you know, again, we're focusing a little bit here on quality of life issues. And right. we have some long-term side effects from radiation. But one of the things that we often hear patients talk about are the side effects of hormonal therapies. I thought we might start with why would you even use a hormonal therapy and what type do, what types do we use? Right. So, um, so this is best studied in men with high-risk disease. So in men with high-risk disease, we have lots of really good data to suggest that when we add hormones, uh, hormone therapy to radiation, that outcomes are much better in terms of you know, the likelihood of curing the cancer, that men live longer when they get it. And so the standard kind of hormone therapy that uh, we typically use is something that actually blocks the pituitary gland. And you know, that's the hormone that we have up in the brain that secretes a lot of the hormones uh, in our body. And it block basically, uh, we, we prevent that gland from uh, uh, telling the, the uh, testes to produce testosterone. So effectively, what we're doing is we're lowering the amount of testosterone that's being produced by the testes. Um, and so, you know, a very common drug that's used to do that is called Lupron. Um, it's an injection that's usually given every uh, three months or six months. And again, what we're doing is we're decreasing the amount of testosterone in the body. And um, so testosterone, we think, is kind of the fuel that the prostate cancer cells use to grow. And so we take that away, um, you know, combining that with radiation, and uh, our outcomes are, are improved. Well, that's a great overview of the three different ways that we sort of attack this disease, the surgery, the radiation therapy, and then talking about the, the prostate as a hormonally kind of sensitive yeah. organ. Um, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to talk about your research in the next half. But right now, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned and learn more. You'll learn more about treatment of prostate cancer and the risks and benefits of hormonal and radiation therapy with Dr. Lester Call in the next half of our program. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, working to change the cancer paradigm through personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year and nearly 200,000 nationwide. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. So we talked about the treatment of prostate cancer in the first half, covering the general concepts around surgery, uh, radiation therapy, and hormonal therapy. And I thought that in the second half, we'd discuss some of the survivorship issues, including quality of life. And one of the treatments that often comes up when we discuss quality of life and long-term side effects is hormonal therapy. Maybe you could just tell us 
how hormonal therapy affects men. Right. So as we talked about earlier, you know, hormonal therapy works by lowering, you know, the amount of testosterone in men. And so that's not without its side effects. Um, so most men will experience, you know, a lot of general fatigue and sort of malaise after, you know, doing that. Um, you know, uh, loss of sexual libido is a very commonly encountered problem. Um, and, uh, you know, actually hot flashes. So men will experience hot flashes too, um, is pretty commonly seen. And there are some, some potential sort of long-term effects that can happen too. So uh, problems with bone density, um, you know, men can have accelerated uh, osteoporosis. And there's a sort of controversial area about whether men who receive hormonal therapy are, are at higher risk of developing heart disease and dying from heart disease. And that's an important thing because as Americans, right, our two big issues are cardiac and, and cancer right, right. now. And uh, so maybe how, what's the theory behind that? Yeah. So um, I guess it was first observed in uh, some very large uh, analyses that were done in the United States and also in Sweden and some, you know, in some randomized trials where they sort of went back and they said, you know, what happened to the men who got the hormone therapy? Were they at higher risk of dying from heart attacks? And really the data is kind of mixed at the end of the day. But the thought is that it may lead to changes in sort of the uh, good and bad cholesterol. It may lead to sort of an adverse uh, cholesterol profile um, and also can cause uh, what's called the metabolic syndrome. So changes in the body, changes in fat deposition um, that, you know, we think of as being actual risk factors for heart disease. Yeah, so so this is interesting because you know survivorship centers around all of these things, um, uh, and the fact that we we sort of leave an imprint on patients. Although we cure a lot of patients, right. they have to live with these long-term side effects. Right, and I I think that we're now able to really step back and say, well, you know, now that we have even more survivors, um, we we really need to pay more attention to not just how long they're going to live, but how well they're going to live. So this right. comes in, you know, this actually is an area where you've done some research, which is, you know, how do we measure now just not quantity of life, but quality of life? Right. So um, measuring quality of life and sort of patient reported outcomes is becoming increasingly a part of clinical trials now. So we're looking at how patients feel and what symptoms they're reporting and also what, you know, doctors think is, you know, going on in terms of scoring the symptoms. Uh, but you mentioned, you know, what's a way to quantify it? So traditionally, you know, we've just looked at survival, right, in, in most studies. But there's actually a way of trying to quantify quality of life, and that's looking at what's called quality-adjusted life expectancy or quality-adjusted life years or qualies. And so quality is this idea that um, a year spent, you know, living with prostate cancer or having side effects from treatment is probably not worth the same as a year spent in perfect health, right? Um, so we might say, you know, uh, based on trying to uh, elicit these scores from men that, okay, maybe being under treatment and having those side effects is worth, I don't know, 80% of a year spent in perfect health. And so we can look at that as a quantity and kind of adjust our outcomes based on how much time uh, patients spend either being under treatment or living with side effects or having some of those permanent imprinted side effects like you mentioned. Right. And, and this uh, goes back to our discussions that we have with patients. The, the prostate cancer treatments are complex, but then the long-term survival and long-term qualities or quality of life issues right. are, are also so important. And at least now, we, I think, are starting a conversation where we can be as 
perhaps as informed about that as we are about some of the other more concrete things that we used to, you know, the concrete things we looked at were PSA, we looked at Gleason, we looked at how many months uh, survival you might gain from a different treatment, but it's, as again, not just how long you live, but it's how well you live. So I like, I I mean, I feel very encouraged by the fact that we're able to give patients something that's so valuable, um, which we weren't able to before. Right. So, I, I, yeah, my hope is that this kind of research will, re- will really, again, sort of facilitate that individualized, you know, patient-centered decision-making and say, okay, you know, maybe for a certain individual um, being alive but having some of the side effects from the cancer, the treatment, you know, that really may take a toll on someone. And they may say, you know, I really, I really couldn't live with, you know, this side effect or that side effect. And uh, that can really help patients come to, you know, a decision about what's right for them. Yeah, I think uh, that's so important. And I wanted to just get into the specific issues that you discussed in, in your paper that recently came out in the JNCI about hormonal therapy in intermediate-risk prostate cancer. And this is an interesting group because there's a lot of controversy as to how to treat them. Right. So we talked about, you know, we have all this great data in high-risk disease. You know, we know adding hormone therapy to radiation really improves outcomes. But, you know, what about men with intermediate-risk disease where, you know, that benefit may not be as robust? Um, So we had a, a, you know, there was a big European trial that was published this past year that, you know, looked at this question, took men with intermediate risk disease and treated them with radiation with or without hormones. And, you know, they saw differences in terms of um, the likelihood of their, you know, PSA scores being good. That is, you know, their PSA scores weren't rising. Um, but there were really no differences in survival in that study. And so we wanted to kind of take that data and create a model where we could look at, you know, not just the cancer outcomes and survival, but also, you know, what about the side effects from these different treatments and potentially test this interaction, you know, with hormone therapy and, cardiova- you know, and cardiovascular outcomes. Um, and so we did that by, uh, you know, also using some data from the Framingham studies. So the Framingham studies were these, you know, big uh, heart disease studies. They took actually uh, families who lived in Framingham, Massachusetts, and, you know, th- uh, they studied them for decades. And they f- that's how we determined that things like, you know, blood pressure and cholesterol, um, smoking, right, um, you know, how uh, diabetes, that these are, are risk factors for heart disease. And so in our study, we were able to sort of break, you know, stratify patients and break it down by whether they had one, two, three, four of those risk factors, or if they had a history of a heart attack. And ultimately, what we found in these men uh, with intermediate risk disease is that we really couldn't see much of a benefit for adding hormones if they had a previous history of a heart attack. And, you know, so why is that? Um, You know, we think that, you know, the life expectancy is probably different in that you know, patient population. And so again, with intermediate risk disease, prostate cancer, you know, they, it suggests that they should probably be focusing on, you know, the heart disease. And that's probably more of an important, important issue for them than aggressively treating the prostate cancer. Yeah. And I think this also plays into the survivorship issue. Um, just like in breast cancer, I think our survivor, we have so many prostate cancer survivors, that being well-informed about, and not only when they walk into the clinic and we do this type of counseling, um, but being informed about lifestyle issues and how they affect, number one, your potential outcome, and weighing your potential uh, benefits and risks of a particular type of treatment like hormonal therapy. But also, in follow-up, we have the patient see a survivorship uh, counselor, um, and lifestyle issues come up there, too. Right. And so actually one thing that we found in our study was that 
it really didn't seem like the benefits of adding the hormone therapy were seen until a very, very long time. So, you know, very, very, very long follow-up period, like, you know, really 10, 15 years out, right? So you're talking about having all of these side effects from treatment in the short term, right, that we talked about, you know, not feeling well, uh, you know, decreased libido, um, all these things. And really for a gain that may not really manifest for a very, very, very long time. And I think that is a really important concept and an important finding of our study is that, you know, um, someone who's, you know, thinking about where they are now and where they may be 10 years from now, they may be in a very different place. And, you know, you have to help people think about, you know, sort of the long-term outcomes. Yeah, which is sometimes difficult because I think um, I've treated prostate cancer cancer patients in the past. And of course, when you see them in consultation, the first thing in their mind is usually, I have cancer, I have to get treated. Right. And there's a lot of urgency. There's a lot of fear around that. So a lot of people feel very reactive and want to just proceed. But um, you know, there has to be sort of a stop and reevaluate point when you're doing the counseling where you think, okay, this is number one, for most people, not an emergency, thank goodness. Right. And we have to think very long term, not right. just about next month, or next year, but right. maybe 10 years ahead. Right, and so that's why I'm sure in your experience too, these consultations take sometimes one to two hours, right? Because we're really spending a lot of time thinking about these issues and you know, weighing these very difficult decisions about um, A, you know, should someone get treatment and what are the sh- you know, side effects gonna be short term and you know, what are these outcomes gonna be uh, later down the road? So anyway, our hope is that you know, these kinds of studies will at least provide patients with more information so that they can make a more you know, educated decision with their doctor about what's right for them. Yeah, and we, we live in a society where people are living a very long time. Right. And uh, we're able to now have different tools from internal medicine, from other studies, um, from some of the longitudinal studies like the Women's Health Study, the Framingham Study, right. where we can really predict now with, I think, better certainty what do we expect in terms of this person's future health future longevity, and then put that together with the cancer diagnosis in a more sophisticated way than we really could in the past. Right. I think before we were more um, sort of just fixated on the cancer itself, and now we're trying to kind of think about the bigger picture, right? So, you know, these other comorbidities and what else is going on. And, and of course, as we talked about earlier in the show, you know, what are the patient's preferences, right, in terms of their own goals and their own goals of care? Right. So highly, highly personalized. Right. Um, one of the things that came up uh, as we as I was thinking about this is that the randomized trials that we're doing on many diseases now include some of these quality of life indicators, right. um, and that was not the case in the past. So maybe you could discuss that a little bit. Right. So um, again, there's sort of different ways of measuring quality of life, and I think the simple way to think about it is what does the patient feel and what is the doctor observing, and so that's very important because oftentimes we find that. Um, you know, those scores can be very different. You know, patients may think that they're feeling, you know, much worse than the doctor may be able to detect. And that may just be because, you know, we have these short fleeting interactions and, you know, we don't have that much time perhaps to really get into, you know, these details. But um, what we're seeing, particularly in prostate cancer, is more and more studies are now reporting both patient-reported outcomes as well as, you know, the doctor's own assessment of what's going on. And so I think that that's really interesting and adds a lot of really valuable information, uh, especially when, again, we're trying to make these decisions about, you know, uh, which treatment is right for the individual patient. Right, because in the past, many, um, in many cases, we were really relying on what the doctor reported. So 
um, it was a, a filtered, uh, filtered answer when you asked about peop- a person's quality of life. Right. Um, it was usually filtered through the physician. Right. Um, and I think this is just uh, part of a bigger picture of personalized medicine, which is really listening to the patient. Right. Absolutely. And, and really hearing what they're saying. And then also, that's another thing we've become more sophisticated about is just really kind of taking those symptoms and grading them and trying to really put that together um, in terms of a big picture uh, sort of scenario. You know, in other words, how well is this person living and is it something that they're satisfied with or is that not really meeting what they feel is is the right type of life for them? Right. Absolutely. And so... I think it's super, you know, it's so helpful to have these kinds of data available to us. So, you know, in consultation, I try to, you know, bring up these studies and show and say, hey, look, you know, if you get, if you get this treatment, here's what patients reported. Here's how they felt. Here's what they thought, you know, went well and what didn't go well. And um, again, I think that's, you know, really, really valuable information. Dr. Nathaniel Lester Cole is a resident in the Department of Therapeutic Radiology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.